Father, it's good to be in your house. It's um, good to consider truths so lofty, so important, so urgent that at times we don't even know what to feel. In one respect, we would feel the emotion of joy and yet also sorrow. We would feel awe and yet also great beauty. To think that nothing is impossible for you, Jesus, is a stunning thought. So, Lord, I pray today for people whose hearts today need to hear a word from you, who, like the woman, um, need to touch you, and like the ruler, need you to touch a family member, or like blind men, need you to touch them. Lord, all different vantage points, one Savior, one power, one hope. Oh, God, would you meet us today, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word desperate is a powerful word. It's filled with uh, a sense of urgency, a sense of desire, a a sense that um, you've come to the end of your rope and you need help. Can you think of some time in your life when you were desperate? When you just reached the end of um, everything that you tried and just simply said, "I I can't do this anymore. You know, we use the word desperate for a variety of sort of life experiences. For instance, we say something like this, I desperately need a vacation. Or we say, you know what, they couldn't find any help, so out of desperation they drove to the Mayo Clinic. Or she'll date anyone. She's so desperate. You see, desperation means that you've reached a point when you're willing to take any kind of action. Something has pushed you to the point that you're willing to do just about anything to find help, to find a solution, to change the circumstances that are causing you pain. And today, our text in Matthew chapter 9 shows us four miracles that are characterized by desperate faith. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus honors desperate faith He intervenes, and this text just declares with beautiful clarity, nothing is impossible for Jesus. We learn that Jesus is the Savior of desperate people. He's the master of people who've reached the end of their rope. He's the rescuer of those who say, I need your help, Jesus. And so my hope is is that today, for those of you who have two things in your minds and hearts, I can't do this anymore, I'm desperate, that you will now find a new thing to say like this, I need Jesus. And my prayer today is that this message will be a meeting between you and Jesus. As he just simply tells you, even though you're at the end of your rope, it's still not impossible for me. Here's the summary statement of what we're going to talk about this morning. It's this. It's that when you've got nothing left but faith in Jesus, you've got everything. Because nothing is impossible for Jesus. So you get to the end of your rope, the end of your life, physical life, the end of of trying everything you can in your marriage, everything trying to reach a particular child, everything you've tried to do to reach a particular friend, you've tried over and over and over, and you just come to the point where you're just like, you know what, i got nothing, i got nothing left but faith in Jesus. And when you are there, hear me, you have everything. Because nothing is impossible for Jesus. And this morning what I hope to do is to show you from this text... uh, 
three different ways that Jesus moves people from their desperation to faith in Him, how He can transform their, how He transformed their lives. And my hope and prayer is that He'll transform some of your lives today, that some of you will really realize that you're here today because God knew that you're at the end of your rope and He wanted you to hear this message so that your eyes would be open and today you would trust Christ. That's why you're here. It's not by accident that I'm talking about desperation. God brought you as a desperate person in this room because He wants to meet with you and He wants to talk with you. There's others of you, you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and the point isn't that you need to receive Jesus. The point is, is that you need to keep trusting the one who's going to keep you trusting. So we begin, verse 18. Jesus moves from loss to restoration. Verse 18 begins with a person coming to Jesus who Matthew describes as a ruler. It says, while he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Now, this ruler and the fact that he's coming is a big deal. Mark 5, 21 tells us that the ruler had a name and Mark actually names him. He writes, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him fell at his feet. So this guy apparently is a well-known guy in the city that Jesus is in, Capernaum. And Jairus is his name. He's identified in this way because he's a well-known man in the city. The fact that he's a ruler of the synagogue, the fact that he's named, and the fact that he comes to Jesus and falls at his feet is really significant. And here's why. Because Jesus is just beginning his ministry. He's teaching and he's healing and the religious establishment crowd, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers, the scribes, they weren't very supportive of this new ministry. In fact, later on in the book of Matthew, we'll see that it is in the synagogues and the very rulers that directly opposed Jesus. So to have a ruler from a synagogue, a well-known ruler, whose name is given to us in the book of Mark, come and fall at the feet of Jesus means that this man is desperate. And why is he desperate? Verse 18 tells us. He says, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, Matthew takes a condensed version. Mark and Luke expand the story a bit. And we find, in particular, Mark chapter 5, that the ruler originally came to Jesus while his daughter was still living. And while he was having the conversation with Jesus, a servant of his house came and met him and said, I'm sorry, your daughter has passed away. So what happened is this man is sitting at the bedside with his daughter and he realizes that she is going to die if he doesn't do something. And so putting away all of the social stigma, putting away all of the things that his friends or other rulers might think this man's got one hope one shot one person he has to get to jesus and forget about what anyone thinks he gets on his knees and says help me my daughter is going to die you ever been that desperate i have before we came to college park just after savannah was born she had a really serious infection we were in a small rural hospital and tried to get help and they just didn't know what they were doing Tried some medications, made it worse, and having reactions, trying to get our physicians on the phone, and nobody knew what was going on. And it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And at that point, you know what? I just simply said, you know what? That's it. We're going to take her, and we're going to drive somewhere two hours away to get her the help that she needs. 
I didn't care about being rude. I didn't care how much it cost. I didn't care how late I had to drive. All I knew, my little girl is hurting and she's getting worse and I am going to do something. I am desperate. That's what this man is. So Jesus goes to his house. Skip ahead to verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, you see what happened here is when someone died in Jesus' day, you had 24 hours to bury the body, much the way Muslims do today. So they'd called for the professional mourners. They'd come and they started the funeral dirge. They They started the process of burial. When Jesus arrives in verse 24, he says something very interesting. He says to the mourners, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now notice their reaction. It says, and they laughed at him. Isn't that interesting? The contrast here is so stunning, isn't it, church? Jesus comes and he sees death and all she's doing is sleeping in his mind because he knows that she's gonna, he's gonna raise her up. She has fully died. Make no mistake about that. But Jesus sees death through a different lens. Jesus sees the world through a lens that the world doesn't see. That's why they laugh at him. Ever had somebody laugh at you because you believe that nothing is impossible for Jesus? Ever said to somebody, you know, this and this and this and this, but we believe Jesus can and have them go, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Just mark it down some way in your mind and heart. That even happened to Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us that our sense of the power of God is foolishness to the world. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's the dichotomy. People around the city today think you are fools for being here, but we know that the message that we hear is not foolish, but it is filled with power from God. So let them laugh. Let them laugh. With a crowd of people laughing and mocking, Jesus quietly goes into the house. And the text tells us he raised her from the dead. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out throughout the district. Yeah, no one was laughing anymore. Jesus quietly restored to this ruler everything that had been lost. Can you imagine that moment when that little girl got up from her bed and her dad wrapped his arms around her and looked at Jesus? He'd given him everything back. Here's the lesson. You know, if Jesus shows up, he can bring restoration just like that. He can bring restoration in so many ways. Five seconds in the presence of Jesus can restore, can change, can transform a person. I've seen it happen. Jesus is in the ministry of restoration. That's what he does. And he does it ultimately and he does it in earthly ways. Let me show you this. He does it ultimately in the fact that Jesus' ministry in this earth and on And in the sense of the kingdom and everything that he is doing is to bring ultimate restoration. What does that mean? It means that he has won a victory and is in the process of ultimately restoring everything back to the way it should be. Reminds me of a song that I listened to when I was a kid. 
by a group called the Imperials. How many of you know that group, right? Okay, we just, you just all dated yourself if you know that group. So, but the funny thing about them, just so you know, when I was in high school, they were like, like naughty music is what they were, which is kind of funny to think about. They were like, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, they were. And, and so they had this song and it went like this. It was, I've read the back of the book and we win. I love that. I read the back of the book, Revelation, and we win. Jesus' ultimate restoration is the story of his victory in bringing everything back to the way it was before sin entered the world. It means that the power of sin and death are broken through who Jesus is and what he's done. It also means that ultimately death is not the end. So that changes how we view funerals and how we view the death of people, how we view dying and how we look at people in their last moments, that we view death through a different lens. It means that the ultimate restoration is the fact that believers share in his resurrected victory. And if that he has been victorious, then we know that we also will be victorious. And it also means that people who know this, who cherish this, have a different view of life. Colossians 3 tells us that if Christ has been raised from the dead, if he's been seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, then seek those things which are above. Meaning that people who believe that Christ will ultimately restore all things to himself have a different or orientation in life they know listen that nothing is impossible for jesus they live in a constant awareness of but jesus there's also an earthly sense it's not just a restoration that is future it's a restoration that even is taking place now listen to colossians 1 18 he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you know what that means? It means, listen, that Jesus has the power to restore anything because He is reconciling all things to Himself. He's bringing things back into harmony in the way that God wants them. That reconciliation and restoration are a critical part of Jesus' ministry. It means that even though people are separated, even though there's um, dangerous things happening in relationships, even though it seems as though all hope is lost, there's power, there's ability, there is authority in the name of Christ and the person of Jesus to have restoration happen now. Not just future, but now. This is the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, tells us that one day Jesus went into a synagogue in Nazareth. He opened the Scriptures and He read from Isaiah 61. And He said, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, He says, this passage is being fulfilled right now in His life. Listen to what the passage says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Now listen to this. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. 
The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You know what that means? If you came to church today and you dragged your flesh here and thought, I don't want to go, I don't want to be there, I don't want to hear it. He has the ability to take your faint spirit today and transform it into a spirit of gladness. He has the ability to do that. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So what Jesus is saying is, that's not just his ministry in the future. That's not just heaven. That is heaven. But it is to bring his kingdom to the earth in terms of helping people see that restoration is not only a future hope, it is a present reality now. In other words, Jesus was sent to restore on earth what we have lost. So listen to me. If this morning you're in a desperate spot, experienced loss, you lost a marriage, lost a child, or maybe they're still living, but they're lost. Lost hope in the future. Lost any sense of uh, your own reputation. Lost your sense of worth. Lost a meaningful employment. Maybe 2009 has been a year of loss. What Jesus says to you is, even though you've come to the end and feel like you've got nothing, you've got everything because nothing is impossible for me. The question is, will you put your faith and trust in Him? That's the question. All right, notice second. Not only from loss to restoration, but also from shame to wholeness. The second encounter takes place in the midst of the first. What happens is in the middle of the story of Jesus going to the ruler's house, he comes in contact with a hurting and shame-filled woman. In verse 20 we see it. It says, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, there are many things that you need to see about this encounter. First, this woman suffered from some kind of medical condition, probably a uterine disorder that made her desperate. In fact, Mark chapter 5 tells us that she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had had and was not better but grew worse. She had no hope. The second thing you need to know is that because of this medical condition, According to the Old Testament law, she was perpetually unclean. So not only did she have a medical issue, but she was unable to attend temple worship. She would have been looked down upon. She would have been viewed with disdain since people would have viewed her judgment, or her illness rather, as, as judgment from God. And the result was she was considered an outcast without any hope. When I was reading this story, I couldn't help think of a situation like that in Togo that Dr. Cropsey told me about. Not a uterine disorder, but another disorder that caused women to be cast out from culture. I just want you to hear the story. Dr. Cropsey, you tell that. Togo still lives uh, back in the time of Jesus in many ways because uh, women who have uh, problems during birthing and, and it's supposed to be the most joyful event of a woman's life, obviously, having a child. 
And sometimes it turns out to be the worst event of their life because what happens if they can't get to a doctor because she has obstructed labor, uh, she, she can't get a C-section. And that happens in about uh, 19 out of 20 women in the, the part of Africa of Mongo. 19 out of 20 women cannot get a C-section. So they either die, their baby dies usually, or else they have a serious complication. One of those complications is that uh, the bladder is damaged, and these ladies just dribble urine down their leg for the rest of their lives, and they come to you, and you can smell them coming half a block away. And they have been sequestered and hidden in a corner because they're so ashamed of themselves and their families cannot stand the smell. So when they heard about HBB, our hospital in Togo, and they heard that we do this operation to fix them, they come joyfully with hope. And uh, it's a wonderful experience to watch these women's lives totally transformed. Not only is our life transformed by having healing from this problem, but their heart gets transformed almost universally because they are so grateful there's a God that loves them as well. And they go back home a very transformed person. Yeah, amen. So the woman in our text, not unlike the women in Togo, is desperate. And she is filled, listen, with shame. That's a big word, shame. See, she doesn't approach Jesus like others do. She doesn't fall down in front of him. She doesn't come and talk with him. There's no conversation. There's no encounter. Instead, she comes up behind him and just touches the hem of his garment. Why? Because she is ashamed. Shame is a direct result of the presence of sin in the world. Ultimate restoration when we stand before God In heaven, in glory, forever. Listen, no shame. You know why? No sin. Back to the garden. We are spiritually naked before God and absolutely cleansed and there's no shame. But right now, we live in a world with shame. It began with sin. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2 that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And then when sin came, they hid because they were ashamed. Shame comes for a number of reasons. Shame always comes because of sin, because of imperfections. Sometimes things that we've done. Sometimes things that have been done to us. And what shame does is it tells us a story about who we are when we're really not. That person. And shame is a powerful thing that can grab a hold of your heart. Like this woman who won't come to Jesus from the front perspective. She won't have a conversation with him. No, she comes in secret, in hiding, because she's desperate. But she's also filled with shame. Luke 8 tells us that when she touched his garment, that Jesus sensed power leaving his body. Remarkable. And then... And rather a kind of a comical moment, turns to his disciples and asks him, who touched me? And his disciples respond, Master, there's a crowd around you. You're asking us, who touched you? They're like, look around. You know, there's like all kinds of people who touched you. And then Jesus says, no, I felt power go out of my body. Meaning, not who touched me, who touched me in faith. And as he began to ask the question, Mark 5 tells us that the woman, knowing what had happened to her, that she had been instantly healed, came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him and told him, listen to this, the whole truth. 
So she's sneaking and hiding, and in her desperate state of shame, she tries to get help. And Jesus, in a beautiful moment of compassion, says to her, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Oh, that word well. Oh, to get that into your soul today. The word well is a big word. In the Greek, it's the word sozo. It's the word that not only means to heal, it means to make whole, it means, listen, to save. It is the same word that in Romans 10 when it says, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's the same word in Ephesians 2.8 where it says, for by grace you have been Saved. It's the same word in John 3, 17, after telling us that for God so loved the world and saying that Jesus didn't come in the, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's that word, saved and healed and made whole. It's the, the word that means the full orb completion of all of God's work. Don't miss this. Here is Jesus who is touched by an unclean woman. And that is a remarkable act on her part. Because if she touches him, guess what happens to him? He becomes unclean. So she touches him and he becomes unclean. She is healed, but he becomes unclean. There's an exchange In her shame and in her desperation, she reaches out to Him and Jesus has power that leaves His body that heals her and He receives all of her shame, He receives all of her uncleanness and she receives all the power and all the healing. Do you see the exchange? That is the Gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what happens here is that Jesus makes an exchange with her and the effect is He takes her shame away. Touching Jesus made her acceptable. It made her clean. It made her no longer ashamed. You see, shame comes because of an awareness of something dishonorable, something improper, something embarrassing. Shame can come to you because of something that you do. Shame can come because of something that someone else has done to you. And Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. Or, remember the King James, some of you grew up with that translation, says, woman, thy faith hath made thee whole. Here's what Jesus is able to do. He's able to take shame-filled people who feel like they're half a person, feel like someone took half their life away, took their childhood away, took their teenage years away, or you look back on your past and you just have so much regret associated with what you were before you met Jesus, and there is so much shame that exists from there, and the beautiful reality that Jesus can come and He takes our shame away. It's not that He changes the past or He rewrites the history. No, what He does is He gives you a new identity, a new purpose, a new reason that you live, a new identity, a new sense of reason why you exist in this world. He takes your shame and He eclipses it with the beautiful reality of what it means to be in Christ. And you live in that all the time. So for those of you today who wrestle with shame, 
I want to give you a few statements about who you are in Christ. And I want you to use these. For some of you, these are rallying phrases that every morning you need to preach to your heart. Because the devil loves to remind you about your past. And when he does, remind him about the way that Jesus took your shame away. The Bible tells us that God knows it all and He still loves me. Get this. God knows exactly who you are. He sees you with perfect discernment. He knows your thoughts. He knows the things that nobody else knows about you. And He still loves you. And I don't tell you that to try and pump you up. I tell you that so that you'll fall on your face and say, You are so merciful. He's sovereign over everything. It means that God knows the end from the beginning. He has divine designs over your life. Nothing happens by mistake. Everything is a part of His plan for your life. Even the things that people have done to you, even the things and the mistakes of your own past, God is not limited by anything in the world, including sin and the devil. Third, oh, to remember and preach to our hearts that you are completely forgiven, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There are some days when I have to preach this truth to my soul. I am a new creature. I've been completely forgiven. It also means that He makes me a new person. That the old is gone, the new has come. That I'm a new person in Christ. That my now my identity is in Jesus, not in who I am or my success, or my failures. And finally, it means that I live for His glory. It means that God has given me a new purpose in life, a new reason that I live, a new identity that now results in how I pursue life. Now I live for His glory and His glory alone. And when shame or embarrassment comes, we need to take these truths and preach them to our hearts. Even in the small little shame moments. So, last week, I was at a conference in North Carolina. I was at the conference because I was asked to do a workshop at this conference. And there were four or five plenary speakers and about five or six of us who got the opportunity to do workshops. Well, what they didn't tell me was that during the same hour that I'd be doing my workshop, one of the plenary speakers would also be doing his workshop. Okay? So you got Johnny Big Name and Mark Nobody. Okay? <laughs> so in my room... For my workshop, I did all this work getting ready for this, this workshop. There's like 300 people there. And I show up into my, my room, and I'm hoping it's not my room, because it's just me in the room. And then a few moments later, my wife walks in, like, okay, there's one. And then Barb Rice and Joe Rice walk in, and, and they were half my crowd. <laughs> so I had six people at my workshop. So then, the next time comes, the next workshop, and, and some guy, I think the Lord just sent him to because he wanted just to... Keep me as humble as possible. Don't even get up. Just stay in your face, Mark, right there. He comes in and he says, Hey, I set the room up for 75 chairs. Do you think that would be enough for your, your session? And I laughed and I said, That's about 70 chairs too many, honestly. And there was like six more people. So I went all this direction, I traveled all this distance to give a workshop for 12 people. And you know what? It's okay. It really is. But for a few moments in my heart, I had to fight the thoughts of shame and embarrassment. And you know what I have to do? I have to preach. I live for His glory. I'm a new person. It doesn't matter if i got six or six hundred. The aim is to glorify Him. We have to conquer shame by reminding our hearts who we are in Jesus, in the big things and the little things. Do not let the enemy hold you captive to shame anymore. 
The Bible calls us to be new people, new creatures, new folks who understand life through a different lens. Jesus has the power to help desperate people move from shame to wholeness. And it begins by coming to Him first in faith, receiving Christ as Savior, and then by coming to Him every day and reminding your shame-filled heart who you are in Jesus. And reminding yourself when you think, i got nothing in me, but i got everything in Jesus, that's the great place to be. Third, verse 27, from bondage to freedom. The final two stories show us the way that Jesus can liberate people from bondage to freedom. And here's the story of two blind men and a mute man. In verse 27, we see the blind men discover that Jesus is going to come their way. Verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. You've got to feel the urgency here. These blind men are crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. And apparently they don't stop, because when he enters the house, the blind men come to him. They, they, they come right to Jesus. Their desperate search for Christ has finally paid off and they encounter Jesus and he says to them, verse 28, do you believe that I am able to do this? This is really important. He's asking them, if even though they have come to the end of their rope and they know that they can't be healed in themselves, if they will take the risk of believing that Jesus can do this and they respond Yes. And the result is he touches their eyes and he says to them, according to your faith, let it be done to you. So this, friends, is an unbelievably important statement because Jesus has the power to heal the men, but he doesn't heal them until the men believed. He says to them, do you believe that I can do this? And here's the question for some of you today. You know who Jesus is. You know that nothing is impossible for him. But the question is, do you believe that he can do it in your situation? Do you believe theoretically and doctrinally and theologically that nothing is impossible for Jesus? Or do you believe, Jesus, you know where our son is. Please get him. You know what's going on inside of my body. The doctors have told me this, but Jesus, you, I believe that you can heal me. Please, Lord, I ask you to heal me. Now, are there guarantees in life? No. But the question is, has your faith gone lower and lower and lower? And there are some of you, I believe, that God is wanting to do things in your life, and He's waiting until you cross the threshold of faith, until you say, Lord, I choose to believe and trust. Because what happens here is although Jesus has, is filled with infinite power, although He is in, filled with infinite might, He has the power to heal these men. He doesn't release it until faith activates it. Notice that faith activates the power of Jesus. Why does He operate this way? Here's why. Because Jesus' aim in life is not just to heal. It's not just to restore. It's not just to free people. Those are the platforms. Jesus' aim is for something greater, something far beyond even that. Jesus' aim is to elevate our hearts and have us put our faith in Him. Faith is the goal. Healing isn't the goal. And the problem with some of you is that you have 
prayed for so long or labored for so with so many tear-filled prayers that you've just given up and said that's it and it and it may be that God answers your prayer by saying no for the rest of your life, but that doesn't justify you throwing up your hands and saying, oh, let's be done with it. Let's not pray about it anymore because it's humbling. And in fact, sometimes it feels shameful, doesn't it, to come again and again and again and again. But every time you come and every time you say, I know you can, I'm at the end of my rope, but I have faith in you, I believe that you can, every time you do, you are putting your faith in Jesus and you are glorifying Him. So faith activates the activity of Christ in the lives of these men. You see, Jesus is not here just to heal. He is here so that their hope will be in Him. And that's the problem of what happens with shame-filled folks who stop praying in faith, is they stop believing in Jesus' abilities. Now the final story is not just about a mute man. It's actually about the contrasting response of the Pharisees. In verse 32, we find that a mute man is brought to Jesus. He's demon-oppressed. And the, and the text very quickly says, And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything done like this in Israel. But notice the Pharisees. The point of this miracle is not the mute man. The point of this miracle is the response of the Pharisees. The Pharisees say he casts out demons by the prince of demons. You see, they refuse to believe that Jesus had the power to be able to heal. They refuse to believe that Jesus had the power in himself to be able to cast out this demon. So instead, what do they do? They attribute a good work as evil. They attribute his power to Satan. Why do they do that? Here's why. Because if Jesus does these miracles with his own authority, then they're wrong. If Jesus has the power in himself to cast out a demon and to make a mute man speak, then he really is the Messiah. If he can cast out demons by his own authority, then he really is Lord. And the Pharisees would rather believe that he has a demonic power than to believe that he really has the authority. Because if they did believe, they'd have to submit. And that's the problem where some of you are today. You, you won't believe, you won't trust, because if you do, then you have to yield your authority to run your own life. And here's the great divide. The question is, will you believe in Jesus? Will you believe that nothing is impossible for Him? I don't mean, will you believe, is He really the Son of God? Did He die for sins? Was He the Savior of the world? I mean much more than that. I mean, do you believe that He is the Lord? That He has authority over your life? That He has the power to change your life? Do you, do you believe that running to Him in desperation and saying to Him, have mercy on me, or yes, change me, or take over my life, my identity, my mind, my body, my will, Lord Jesus, take me captive so I can be free? The question is, will you believe? Or will you simply be content to live in a shame-filled, faithless existence where no, I will not say to Him, I am at the end of my rope, I've lost everything. But nothing is impossible with you. Listen, nothing is impossible for Jesus. 
your past, your sin, your pain, your mistakes. They're, they're not impossible for him. What you've done, what others have done to you, your fear of the future, they're not impossible for him. But it takes a leap of faith for you to say, I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me. And I take the risk of putting my faith in you. The question is, do you believe? Do you desperately believe that Jesus can bring restoration from loss? He can bring wholeness from shame and freedom from bondage? Do you really, do you really believe that when you've got nothing left but faith in Jesus, you've got everything. Why? Because nothing is impossible for Jesus. Do you believe that? Or is that just a fact on a slide? Or will this today become a launching pad for you to say, I'm scared, I'm nervous, I don't want to be disappointed, I don't want to make you do my will, but I today bend my knee to you and say afresh, I don't know how, I don't know why, and I don't know how you're going to do it, but what I do know is not. Nothing is impossible for you. So please, Jesus, help me. And your hurt and your pain and the past become platforms for faith in him to be an aroma that glorifies him in a beautiful and powerful way. Your desperation is by divine design so that you will glorify Him in unbelievable faith and Christ-exalting trust. Lord, I pray for desperate people today. Not just for them because they are desperate, but I'm asking You to give us desperate people. Whether here in this auditorium worship to or on a podcast I pray that right now you would provide desperate people a measure of hope Lord just speak into their hearts that regardless of circumstances regardless of things that have taken place that every day has got new mercy there's always hope with Jesus Lord, I can imagine there's some folks here that are angry at you. Got all sorts of reasons to be frustrated and angry. Or maybe folks, Lord, that are in the middle of a battle with some war in their soul. And today is just a a good reminder. I've got to keep trusting. Keep believing. Not on my own strength. Or maybe, Lord, there's someone here today who needs to trust Christ this very day. That you have them here because in desperation... You've met them and spoken to them. Because when you have lost everything and all you've got is faith in Jesus, listen, you have everything. And so, Lord, drive that truth home, we pray, in our hearts for your glory and for our weak faith. We pray this in Christ's name.